Welcome back to the Reset Rebel podcast with me, Joe Yule. And for today's episode, we are cosily seated in the Hub studio. And I'm very excited to introduce you to New Northern Soul record label owner and DJ, Fatville Cooper. Hello. It's, you say the Hub, but I think you said earlier it could be a hospital waiting room. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit, yeah, I'm not sure where I am. It doesn't project the beautiful majestic majestic ibiza does it it projects nhs waiting room i'm I'm glad you brought that up actually because (laughs) i feel like i should be wearing a gown right now (laughs) Uh, yeah and i should be some some medicines and stuff no it's i like it i do like it it kind of is very um there's not too much going on which is good because i'm very distracted normally i'd be like oh look at that oh there's a light there's a screen and but here i'm not so yeah very comfortable (laughs) very comfortable indeed have you had some good hospital experiences in the past um no, terrible. I was in the re- one of the reasons I left. I was living in Bali prior to moving back to Europe, and uh, I, I had uh, some problems breathing when I was in Thailand. So I went to the hospital in Bali where I was living, and they were like, did all this stuff. Oh yeah, you need stents in your heart and blah 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 blah. So luckily, I had a friend over from the UK whose cousin is Australia's premier heart surgeon, and he made a couple of calls, and he said. I suggest if Phil can get to Perth, go to Perth because they have better facilities and get it checked. And it was nothing to do with my heart. It was pulmonary embolisms that had travelled from my legs because of the fly into my lungs. So not only were they going to try and fix my heart, which was nothing wrong, they would have missed the problem and I would have probably died. So no hospitals are, you could say that wasn't the best experience. And I was like, I love Bali, but I'm not young anymore. And, you know. If they can't get this right now, what, what's it going to be like 10, 20 years down the line? So that was it. Adios. I'm very happy that you are uh, still with us and, and seated right here in our mini mini waiting room. I think, you know, let's start at the beginning because we met at Bestival exactly 10 years ago. Yes, I was thinking that on the way up. I was trying to work out the dates, but yeah, yeah, it would have been. Wow. Such a long time ago. And we haven't changed. We're still the same. Yeah, probably a little, well I'm certainly a little bit more uh, not so fluid. I did try some yoga I think with you when I was there and I thought this isn't really for me. I did try and in fact when I went to Bali I did even push it for about a month but the poor girl who was trying to teach me, she just said some people are just not suited to it. I couldn't get, I couldn't get coordinated, it was like she, she called me the baby hippopotamus. Well, I never would have described you as such. I mean, I remember I was wearing pink spandex. I've got a cracking photo, which I'm going to put on Instagram when I publish this episode, just because I can. And um, I did manage to get you into tree position, I believe. Yeah, I'm not going to do it now, but yeah, I, I remember. But I, I think I think I was leaning against um, a security fence, so it might look like I'm balanced, but no, I was just literally like, yeah. That was a great festival, and um, I think actually Elton John played that year and I was actually teaching yoga on the main stage that very morning which felt like you know to be Elton John's warm-up act who's just finished Glastonbury that was a moment I'll you know never in my life again will I be able to say that I graced and warmed up the stage for Elton John. He actually said to me because I'm good friends with Elton he said so glad I had Joe Yule warming up for me it was a hard gig but made easier because Joe did the yoga with everybody and just got everybody all zen in that. Lubed him up. 
Bloody hell. That's not what I was thinking. No, it probably, yeah. Yeah. Good old Sir Elton, still belting the hits. I mean, he did a cracking job at, um, at Glastow, and I really, you know, that tribute to George Michael, I mean, even I was welling up. I mean, he was one of my heroes. I've, I've yet to watch it. It's all on playback. This weekend, I'm going to do a full Glastonbury. Yeah, going to go through all the acts I want to see and do it all on iPlayer. Yeah, I didn't do any really. I, uh, what did, did I watch anything? No. I, I kind of dipped in and out, and I was just distracted. So it's like the weekend, switch off, get into Glastonbury, and I'll watch that. Yeah, for sure. I just watched the um, clips of, I'm trying to remember his name. He's a singer, he's got Tourette's. Yes, um, the Scottish chap. Yeah, it was amazing. I, I, I saw a bit of that. Um, yeah, and it's just the love that the the audience were giving back to him. And his doc, there's a great documentary about him, I think, on Netflix, going through this whole uh, mental health issue and now, it, it, you know, he's, he's ticking his Tourette's thing. And Yeah, and it's um, heartwarming yet heartbreaking at the same time. But yeah... I mean, it, it, you know, it was good to see the crowd give him the love and stuff. So, I just didn't like the way that it was reflected on media. You know, the BBC kind of publishing this line saying that he was kind of apologising because he let the crowd down when actually I think they felt completely differently about it. And he is having a bit of a mental breakdown right now and is, is taking some time out. He's been touring so hard. And I think it was really beautiful that he's been so open about that and able to, to really talk about that. And the way that the crowd supported him was incredible and that was just such a negative spin to take on the whole experience yeah. and I think you're right and I do think that's that is the the issue with why people perhaps aren't willing to come forward to talk about mental health issues is because of how it's portrayed you know if the if the mass media BBC for example are doing as you've said it's not good they should be you know they should be spinning that in the true sense you know somebody's clearly struggling but everybody there supporting him which which is just you know, how it should be full stop everywhere, really. I just love the fact that he is probably one of the most real, major, major megastars. He's got six and a half million followers. I was looking at his Instagram last night and I was like, everybody loves him. He posts pictures of, like, his moves. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's In his in the documentary, he's very open about all that and, and, and you go through that whole thing with him. There's his highs and his lows. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's a shame that it's not pushed the narrative is not pushed in its true form as you say it's, they paint the negative when they don't need to you know you could see you could see what's happening with your own eyes you know those people wouldn't be singing if they didn't feel for him right mm. yeah absolutely not and i think you know it's just so common really for people in the music industry who are by their very nature creatives to have some kind of like mental health issue and i know that you had your own struggles with adhd and then suddenly in your adult life you got diagnosed I and mean, what's that been like for you oh um you're fine to be honest I mean it, it was something I suspected I had and I'm quite pragmatic and I went to see my doctor and, and this was before it was really recognised in adults and he basically prescribed me some antidepressants and then when I went back he was like read this book on mindfulness which I thought was quite good and then that's when I moved to Bali I was like I'm going to go somewhere where I can you know don't have to necessarily worry about this and I didn't really need to think about work as such because I'd, I'd I'd been involved in a big sort of startup company and I'd managed to exit that and so financially I wasn't worried so I, I that's where I went and yeah while I was there I met my, now my ex-girlfriend although we're still great friends my my girlfriend and she had a friend who was visiting one weekend and I had kind of a bit of a meltdown and they her friend was ADHD and she'd had it for years and diagnosed and so they spent a long time talking and then Nicola my ex um uh, 
said, you know, have you got ADHD? And I said, yeah. And I told him my whole story that I think I'd had it and was told I didn't. And then I managed to go and see a private, a French lady actually in Singapore where ADHD is regarded as mental health and you'll be locked up. So it's an underground thing. So I was going to these covert meetings and there was, I mean, Westerners there, locals. I mean, one poor guy, he was a teacher and he was driven, his his addiction, as it were, was knowledge. So he would constantly be reading watching stuff which is a teacher I guess is great but he had all the other stuff that ADHD so he had this kind of mental hyper attitude and which I looked around was like actually mine probably isn't you know if there's a scale of one to ten he was ten and I was probably three Um, and then from there I I came to the UK and got it privately diagnosed and and got onto meds um, which recently I've been doing a lot of reading on microdosing and stuff so I've kind of come off the meds I'm now looking at well I've started microdosing um and just being more aware, and once I think you're aware of it, um, it's easier to kind of go off and learn about it. And I'm lucky that I'd always, always throughout my life, my from a teenage years till now, I put in little systems. And actually, I'm reading stuff. Oh, I do that. I do that. And these are all things that they're telling me I should do to help me, you know, get through life. So I think I'm quite fortunate, really, that I'm not, you know, undiagnosed, don't know what the hell's going on. And I think... There's so many people who I see people now who are clearly, you know, have been in the creative industry where it doesn't matter. And then suddenly they're stepping into the real world and it's like, oh, my God. And you can see them buckling under pressure because their behaviour is, I wouldn't say not normal. It's just different, you know, and in the creative world doesn't matter you know I, you know I, I look back and think of the things that were going on in the crazy days in the 90s when I was traveling the world and playing at cream and stuff and it pales into significance you know um so yeah I mean I you know life for me is is no different I just um I'm quite regimented in lots of things um but yeah there is still plenty of scope for and not just in the creative industry but in the everything for the for, for mental health you know I, I lost my brother through mental health in lockdown um and he you know he he'd had a history of it and he was kind of getting through it and it was fine he was actually training as a counselor he had a little boy in a relationship they went together but he had his boy x amount of days and blah blah covid came couldn't see his boy uh, lots of things had happened previously and it all manifested into a place where he took his own life in the end unfortunately um so it's weird because you know even though that's happened I still see people and even sometimes I question myself it's like you know I I don't think we are really set up for mental you know I sometimes think oh god I can't be bothered getting out of bed today but it's like unless you know you, you know even if you go to a doctor they just go take these pills take these pills and I don't think that fixes anything I think it's it kind of numbs the pain, maybe numbs things, but doesn't fix it. So that's why I've gone down this microdosing, you know, study of, you know, even just taking things like lion's mane supplements and things like that. You know, I've hit fifty odd now, and I'm like, I need, you know, things for my knees and vitamins, and so I, I just think there should be more of that. You know, walking for me is brilliant. You know, we're very lucky here; we can get out in a few days in the sunshine. Yesterday, I was up super early, went for a massive hike in a sea swim. And I'm just like top of the world, you know. That's what they should be prescribing. Unfortunately, they don't. You know, the pharmaceutical industry makes far too much money. You know, walking in the hills is free, right? 
show. I think, well, firstly, I'm very, very sorry to hear about your brother. That's um, incredibly sad. And I think, yeah, a lot of that happened in, in those years. And, and there's still, I think there's still a kickback that's, that's kind of come, happening after after that whole period um, in lots of different ways. And um, I'd just be very interested. I mean, you say microdosing, but you haven't really specified with what. Psychobil- oh, I can't even pronounce it. Mushrooms, magic mushrooms. Yeah. So I'm doing four days on, three days off. This is my third day. I'm not expecting, you know, I've been reading up on this for a long time. I'm certainly not jumping into, because I've had mac- micro- macro dose experiences in the past. Um, and I and I actually was looking at macro dosing, but doing it because Spain has, Spain has been involved in magic mushrooms for many, many years. And it's actually legal in to research and stuff. I mean, there's there's what they call them, scriptures going way back before the Bible that actually talk about magic mushrooms and psychobilin and what, the word I can't pronounce. So I was very interested. To, Psilocybin. That's the one. That's why you're here and I'm not. That's why you do this amazing podcast and I, don't, I can't even say the word. Um, so I was looking into this because I was, you know, I still got quite a lot of baggage about, I think, with my brother and stuff. And I wanted to go and have, you know, a full on, you know, get this out of my system. And from what I've been reading, macro dosing done correctly with guides and, and uh, psychologists etc is very very good but through that I kind of got into reading into the whole microdose and I was like oh this sounds really good you know it's something I would be interested in because I always have had an interest for things like that and I just the more I listen to it and you know realize how you know I have no problem with the pharma industry it is an industry to business they've seen well if we take that and mass produce this it will fix 99% of people's headaches we make a lot of money okay cool but old medicine books you know everybody's different you wouldn't walk into a gym and have a personal trainer go right you're just going to do this 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 and this I, I, all my clients do the same thing everybody's different we have different psychology so things have to be measured and weighed and tried and it's it's just super interesting so I'm yeah I've started using that the mushroom magic mushrooms as they want to call them plus lots of supplements i'm just going to give it a couple of months just to see and already because i spoke to a friend of mine who's been doing it a few years and he he says he just used the word elastic things that used to be so rigid for you will just become elastic and yesterday when i was walking that word popped up in my head and i literally had i can't describe it it was a sensation a feeling a thought in my brain but my brain had become elastic and I just started it just made me smile I was like okay because it I'm not expecting huge things but the one thing I have read up is it's make a note of these things and all the it doesn't fix you it just allows you to fix yourself the first day I took it I became incredibly tired and just wanted to sleep all day that's just the body telling me you need to slow down I mean I'm like you we're 100 miles an hour all the time so and I'd also read that when that happens just stop what you're doing let it do its thing and I literally just spent a lot of time napping and, and then the next day I felt amazing I was like oh, okay this this is doing the things it says you know that I've been listening to on these podcasts and reading up on so yeah I'm, I certainly wasn't expecting you know to pop it into be you know lights and tunnels and wow it, it, it is subtle and I'm, I'm I'm up for that subtle approach so let's see how it goes maybe in a month's time I'll let you know See, you know, see if things have changed but yeah it's very interesting and like I say nothing against the whole you know I've had good and bad experiences with hospitals um, you know I've had you know, the ADHD pills I had been taking were great 
but I'm just like, I don't really want to be putting in lots of chemicals in my body all the time, you know, especially at 100 euros a, a month. Um, I just want to see how this goes and see if it has and if, if, if it works, because it apparently will help ADHD as well, social anxiety, uh, depression, and I'm not saying I'm depressed, I think, you know, we all have our ups and downs, but I just wanted to try it and see uh, see what the benefits are. I think, well, I definitely had my own little dabble with microdosing in lockdown as well. I used to go out for a very long morning walk and have a little nibble on a magic mushroom chocolate. And um, yeah, it really, really helped me. And I felt very, you know, isolated and stuck in my own head and getting out in nature and then having a little nibble in the mornings. I mean, not every day, but just sometimes when I really felt like, oh, my God. I'm not coping. I need to do something different today and open my mind a little bit and stop feeling so trapped. And that really, um, really, really helped me enormously. And I think, you know, for a woman of my age, I think also hormonally, there was a lot of imbalances starting to kick off around about that time, which is terrible timing, really. Um, So that that was like my saviour, really. So I'm a a big advocate for all of that. Let's talk about the music um, side of things. I mean, obviously, you know, you've been DJing for a very long time. How long have you been DJing? Um, First professional gig, I think, was probably about 1991. And then I came. I started coming to Ibiza in about the same time. But I'd been collecting music since I was 13, 14. What was the first record you bought? Uh, Ant Music, Adam and the Ants, and Joe Dolce's Shut Up Your Face. I remember that one. In fact, prior to that, I think I even got a copy of um, uh, the London Symphonic Orchestra uh, Star Wars album. (laughs) So that kind of stuff. But yeah, I I think that was bought for me by my dad because we were in a shot and I was like, I really want that one. But I think money, with my own money, those two records, Joe Dolce, Shut Up Your Face and Adam Ant, Ant Music, Little Sevens, yeah. And where did you grow up? Um, so I spent my, from about year three, third year in secondary school in North Wales, prior to that, because my father was, had been in the forces, we'd been to Salisbury, uh, I was born in overseas. Um, yeah, we'd lived kind of all over. We'd come, moved back up to Wales for a little bit um, and my dad would commute but that was just too much so we ended up joining my dad back down in in, uh, Wiltshire again so I kind of say North Wales really that's my informative years you know those teenage years Um, place called Colwyn Bay Um, not really famous for anything no 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 I lie and it's very uh, yeah Colwyn Bay Pier is where uh, pre-chic Niall Rogers and Bernard were in a band and um, I found this out because Niall Rogers tweeted many years ago, first time he saw ladies dancing around handbags was at Colwyn Bay Pier. So I followed up with a tweet and he replied. We ended up swapping personal email details and this was before he had his cancer scare. And I was, I wanted to get a blue plaque. And I, you know, contacted the mayor. I was like, look, this, this, this is disco culture came. Colwyn Bay has got something at last. And um, so Niall was lovely and he was like, I'm up for this. And then he just emailed me, look, I've had some really quite shocking news regarding my health I'm going to hand you over to my assistant and if anything happens we'll make it happen and you know I was even speaking to the BBC and they were useless they didn't follow up on it could have been a great story and then it just never happened but many years later they awarded Niall Rogers the whole IMS thing I interviewed him that that year well they brought me in Ben Turner to host this signed guitar of his to give away because they had 
Simon Le Bon playing, and that was an amazing gig. So I had this whole routine of coming on stage. We've never actually met, but we've spoke via Twitter, and I was going to introduce myself and basically say, you're basically my dad, you must have been, because I love disco, you invented disco, you were knocking around North Wales, you know. And, and I was going to say, you owe me X amount of years, birthday and Christmas presents, and I'm going to come on your tour bus. And as soon as they finished, they were in a private plane and buggering off, so I didn't even get a chance to speak to him. But, um, yeah, so that's the only thing out of Colwyn Bay, really. It was Colwyn Bay. I mean, it's beautiful now. I was back a couple of weeks ago when we had that really bad weather here, but it was amazing in the UK. So I went home for a week and just did loads of walking in this whole promenade where I used to bunk off school and go and hang out in the amusements area. It's been restored and it's absolutely glorious down there now. But I think that comes with age as well. So, yeah, I grew up in North Wales, but then moved to Chester when I could. Um, didn't want to go to Liverpool because it was the place where... The only people you would carry on partying with are the wrong sort, you know. So Chester was close enough I could get in and out of Liverpool for gigs without being caught up in the whole craziness of it. Um, but yeah, um, I love that part of the world, but I don't think I could live back there now. Mm. Yeah. So when did you first start coming to Ibiza? Uh, 90 or 91. Um, I, th- I think it was 91, actually. I'd come with some friends, and it was when the airport was tiny, and I remember coming down the steps... And you know that smell you get when you've landed just just after the sun's gone down, so it's still that warm, piney, and I got this smell, and I, and I felt that thing that some people feel about the island. And I muttered under my breath, I'm going to live here one day. And my mate, who was kind of behind, heard me, he says, you bloody idiot, you haven't even got through the airport yet. But I do, you know, as I've got older, I believe I put that out to the cosmos, and, and here I am. Yeah, and I have lived here before, um, didn't quite work out, but I think the island can do that brings you in lets you know when you're ready or if it doesn't like you it spits you back out so so far it hasn't spat me back out I mean what was your experience of the early days of Ibiza because you you know you were, obviously I discovered your music after I interviewed you at Festival. I started to go through some of your mixes and the compilations and the stuff from New Northern Soul that you were putting out at the time and they were just these magical journeys really of like not just ambient music but you had a very Balearic feel quite soulful feel disco all the things you've just described and they were amazing and I followed you and have been following you for a really long time so musically for me you're one of those people that curates music in a way that is just a a beautiful thing and and a lot of people actually I was just chatting to somebody a journalist who lives in Mallorca who reminded me um, to have a conversation with you and that's actually probably why we're sitting here so I'd love to hear more about kind of your initial discovery process of the island. Yeah um, I think it was stumbling down to the Café del Mar I was aware of all this eclectic music, but the way Jose put it together and, you know, he was soundtracking Sunset and like most people, you know, sitting watching Jose and watching those Sunset, it was like a lights on moment. I'd been trying to play this kind of music in back rooms of clubs in the UK or warehouses and it just doesn't work. You know, when you're sat in Ibiza, you know, watching the sun go down or the sun coming up, at a villa and listening to that music it all makes sense so having coming back from that with that in my mind um i realized that you know because i used to use a lot of the same music as openers for my sets if i was playing a house set i'd start with a dramatic classical piece to kind of palette cleanse or you know announce i was there but jose obviously was just playing lots of this stuff continuously as that sun was setting um and i think that was it you know i i 
I carried on buying my eclectic music. I was doing lots of house gigs. And then I started being sent by Cream to some wonderful locations around the world, South American stuff. And I would hook up with local promoters there. And I would do my big house gig, but I would always find some small parties or a place that would allow me to go and, and, and play that music. Um, and and over time, started getting into te- technology that allowed me to live stream and broadcast. And so I started doing these mini mixes that I could put out on Podbean and things like that. I mean, you'll know all about those little hosting sites. And then I was getting sent music. Um, and then from there, the label sprung up, which is 11 years this year. I've been running labels since sort of mid-90s, but New Northern Soul as a label was 11 years ago I started that. And that was purely, you know, no fixed genre, no style, no... As long as it worked in Sunset, and, you know, it could be a techno record, it could be a jazz record, it could be an ambient record. Um, and I, and I, my affinity with the island had, had grown, you know, every year. So coming over here and experiencing Jose and, you know, the likes of Pippi, uh, Willie Graff... All those guys who, you know, most people know them playing house clubs, but they're all big record collectors and they all can do sunsets. And So, yeah, I just felt natural and right, and I always felt at home here. And the label, yeah, just kind of, I don't know, for whatever reason, it kind of has stuck. Um, and, yeah, I, I'm very, very lucky that, you know, I live here. I work with so many amazing artists from around the world who still look at Ibiza as the, the spot. You know, if, you, if you've got a a piece of music played at the Café del Mar or La Torre at Sunset is kind of it's a nice it's a nice win for everybody really um, but yeah that's it really uh, did you meet Jose Padilla yes yeah became good friends with him I used to when I lived in Bali would bring him out to play for us and yeah we, I, he basically would come to Bali and at the time I was working for Potato Head our restaurant manager we had a small Spanish restaurant within the facility is from from Ibiza Tobias, he's actually, I think, godfather to one of Andy Wilson's kids. So him and his wife had been in Asia for years, and they ended up working at Potato Head. So we invited Jose over, and rather than just put him on to DJ, we did an evening with Jose, um, where we had this beautiful audio file system, and he bought 12 pieces of vinyl, and he wrote a paragraph of each, and we did a menu of music. We then did a menu of food, all Spanish food, and then Jose passed on his family's recipe for a couple of things so the chefs made that Jose wasn't drinking at the time so a load of cocktails were made for him that were non-alcoholic but all Spanish ingredients and we just had this beautiful dinner and it was sold out I think we did about 100 places and then he went on the next day to do an incredible sunset and he he came I think at the time he was at that point in Ibiza where he wasn't getting the love here as much you know things have changed and he hugged me said I needed this gig you know it was a proper you know he as the sun just touched, it stopped, and then he played a Native American like war chant, but like war, you know that war, and it was just, it was incredible, um, yeah. And so that gig, we had Chris Coco, who's obviously a big friend to the island here, um, Johnny Nash, who is an incredible guitarist and makes the most beautiful ambient music. He's from the UK originally, but he was living in Bali. Myself. And, and uh, yeah, Mr. Jose Padilla, it was amazing. So, yeah, he came a few times and played and stayed for us. Um, but, yes, yeah, that's sad and really sad that it's not been commemorated or marked. You know, why isn't that strip called Jose Padilla? You know, I, that's just us dreaming, I guess. It doesn't mean as much to most people as it does to 
the Balearic Network, I guess. But without him, the whole ambient chill-out compilation thing perhaps would never have existed. You know, he was making those tapes and selling them just to, to fund his... You know, because he was making no money DJing, really. Nobody did back then. But he was selling all these tapes that he put together, those early Café Del Mar tapes, which then became the Café Del Mar series. So, mm. yeah, no, he was a yeah great man, um, you know, musically and stuff. Very inspiring to me, for sure. Mm. I agree. I feel like, yeah, I mean, he obviously recently passed and I think there needed to have been more of a celebration of his life and, and a marking of his passing. I mean, the guy was a legend and, as you said, as, as infiltrated and, you know, made a mark on on hundreds of thousands of people over the year that come to the island and, and none of that magical sunset, you know, memories that all of us have from way back when would exist without him and... Yeah, I think there should be a campaign for for the Sunset Strip to be renamed. I'd also think that, you know, I think we've discussed before, the fact that there's such a great musical heritage, especially through electronic music and what Ibiza has done. And I don't think it's something that should be set up by an individual club, but I think the government, the council, because, you know, they're very open-minded here, from what I gather, when it comes to cultural stuff. To have a a space, even if it's an online space to start, where stuff is documented, the artwork, the history of the flyers, the artists involved, the DJs, the mixtapes, you know. Mm. And beyond that, you know, to to the early jazz scene and, um, you know, that thing. If I was coming on holiday and it was a, a rainy day, I would have no problem paying 10, 20 euros to go to a museum that celebrated that and spending an afternoon there and learning a bit more about the culture and the history and, and you know, people like Jose in there and Pippi and all those and those who've gone before that because unless somebody documents it fully and correctly everybody just puts their own spin on it and it gets blurred and lost and Mm. and I and I also think yeah it would be great for tourism Mm. you know well one of the episodes I made in uh, 2021 was about the Bob Marley gig in 1978 and I did a whole episode I had the entire recording of the actual gig that he played I had all of the music from someone standing in a crowd that just happened to be recording it which is insane because you can hear their conversation you can hear them getting completely shit-faced you can hear them sparking up a doobie it's hilarious and brilliant and like can you imagine like all the gigs that came before that that enabled Bob to come to a place like this you know there were quite a few um, rock gigs and many other kind of like more hippie kind of um, music musicians that came over sort of in the 70s and early 80s. Yeah, for sure. And and we also, again, I think I've touched on this with you before, Dea in Mallorca had um, a huge scene, the psychedelic rock scene and pre-Ibiza becoming Ibiza, there was this amazing scene happening there and lots of big musicians had studios there and settled there and recorded music there. So, like who? Um, so the Canterbury scene, which was the Canterbury musicians, which is all that prog rock scene from the UK, that a lot of them decamped to, and had properties and studios there. And Mr. Nice, Howard Marks, had his house in Dea. And I'm pretty sure whatever he, he was passing around was helping that scene, right? Um, and then his good friend, Reese Evans, Super Furry Animals Reese, who became Mr. Nice for the film, lived there. Um, Joanne Bibaloni who I've, I've worked with, lovely guy from Mallorca, he was part of that scene. He lived on the fringes of all that. So he he's given me a lot of this information. Um, and again, I think 
it kind of all makes sense. You know, these are only sh- small islands. When Franco chased all the free thinkers away, they they kind of fled to these islands um, and just, you know, pre-internet, I mean, pre-mobile phones, and they just all did their thing up in the hills and in the mountains. I mean, have you been to Dea? It's kind of, oh, it's amazing. It's, it's cut out, so it's in a kind of a valley and it's all cliff it's all the houses are built out of the kind of rock and it's just amazing um and it's kind of quite you know now it's easy to get to but you can imagine back in the 50s and 60s where when i go i can stay up north above Dea, and until they put this huge motorway and tunnel in more french people would sail to this town than people would travel from mallorca because it took them so long it was more french influenced um, because how remote it was mm-hmm. until I think about the seventies or eighties. Um, but Dea, yeah, is, is amazing. It's very, very affluent now. I mean, super, super rich. Uh, Robert Graves, the English poet, his family moved there. I mean, he moved there, and, and you know they were involved in that kind of whole scene as well. So poetry and music. Um, but it's yeah, you, you know, you're multimillionaires now living there, or you know, Hollywood stars and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's it's absolutely beautiful up there. Yeah. I think the artists and the poets and the musicians and the you know the real free thinkers, as you put it, don't really have the budget to be there anymore. And I think the exit of those guys has kind of like affected the infiltration of the people you know that want to live there because the three thinkers live there. So it's a kind of like a, a double-edged sword in many ways. And I think that there was talk I read in the Guardian not so long ago of like a tax being put on people that are not from Mallorca buying houses there to kind of stop this overtaking of the area um so it's kind of interesting to read that and I was also in conversation as I said before with David Holzer who's the man who told me that I needed to have a chat to you and and here we are and I think that leads us quite neatly into the conversation about recifference because obviously we've been talking about this wonderful poem that he recorded for you yeah so um I have a really good friend from Wales called Gareth Potter and Gareth I, I met Gareth through Mark Broadbent who does he used to do Pike I uh, used to do We Love Sundays he now does Pikes on Sundays and he said oh I've got this person to meet he's a Welshman like you and he makes these amazing mixtapes for sunsets but just using Welsh music and I'm like I need to listen to those and he's done about three volumes and then we met in Ibiza at Pikes had a lovely time became good friends and I, a couple of years ago I did uh, I didn't discover that that almost implies like it wasn't a thing but I found out that St David's Day 1st of March and Balearic Day the unification of the Balearic Islands 1st of March and I was like this happens the same day every year I was like this this is an omen or something so I got into Gareth and I said Gareth St David's Day Balearic Day same day we need to do something he's like wow this is amazing let me go speak to Reese. I was like Reese. he goes yeah Reese Evans it, he's a good friend it's brilliant and then Gareth says, I spoke to Reese and um, have an idea. I, there's a poem, Phil, you might not be familiar with, and I, I wasn't. It's a poem called Covio by a Welsh poet called Waldo Williams, who was a big socialist um, and a man of the people. And he wrote this poem, and it's essentially about sunsets, amongst other things. And Gareth is particularly fan of this because, you know, he would come to Ibiza over the years, go and sit in some of the, you know, the hidden spots to watch sunset. And he would often re- recite this poem to himself. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. And he says, we can probably get it. I know some people who know the family, because the art, Wilder Williams is, is passed, but his estate still owns the rights. So I think I licensed it for about 70 quid. 
with the full blessing of the family to do pretty much what we want. So we, uh, and then I got put in contact with Reese to organise, and Reese was filming House of Dragons, the, the follow up to Game of Thrones. And uh, he's like, uh, I'm not even going to attempt to do his voice, but in his very, very Welsh, North Welsh accent, he's like, Well, I'm back in the UK in London for a couple of days. If you can get me in a studio, I'll, re- I'll recite it, you know, I'll record it for you in English and Welsh. So I spoke to my friend Paul Arnold, who runs Ultras Studios in King's Cross, and we got a couple of hours in, and we managed to get um, Gareth down there, and they took a little camera, so we've got some lovely footage of him, and it's just amazing. I mean, he I only, I didn't see the video footage first, I just heard the recording of the recital, and there's a rustle of paper, and then you hear this... <clears throat> And then you just hear him launch into it. And honestly, all the hairs on the back of my... And then when I saw the video, he's sat there and he's got... Because he's, he's got this huge beard for this film. So he's he's looking really majestic. But he's in the studio just gesticulating or whatever. And gesticulating. Gesticulating, yes. <laughs> gesticulating. And um, it's just brilliant. And we got that recorded. And then I spoke with Joanne Bibaloni, the guy I mentioned earlier from Mallorca, and he had a couple of pieces of music that we kind of refreshed. Music he'd wrote many years ago, but it was perfect for this project. And he introduced me to Pep Tossar, who's a very famous Spanish actor who's done stuff in Hollywood. And and we got him to do Catalan and Spanish versions, but different music. So we used two different pieces of music. So although it's the same poem, the tempos, and it, it, they're very different pieces of work different pieces of music and works so yeah recorded those and we've got a great artist from south wales to do all the sleeve work and we're releasing the vinyl lots of sleeve notes as well in interviews um next year and we're also looking to make some documentaries about it we have a guy uh, a director from cardiff looking to make something for s4c but I am very much looking for some Spanish or Balearic Island partners to create something for this for this audience because what we're making for S4C is very Welsh centric. So, you know, we we want to interview uh, not just people involved in the project, but lots of other Welsh actors and musicians about the, what used to be the free party scene. You know, watching the sunrise over the Welsh valleys, having been up all night partying, and how does that compare to sunsets in Ibiza? You know, and but I'd love to do something here in in the Balearics. You know, especially Mallorca, Ibiza, and. Um, so yeah if if anybody wants to give us some money or is it got a production company if you want to get involved and help us so we'd love to hear from them and with regards to juan Vibaloni, can you tell us a bit more about him so, yeah juan's this amazing i mean such a funny guy he must be in his 70s and he has lived not a wild life but he's you know certainly enjoyed himself he now uh, looks after he breeds um you know the little where they go around in the little buggies the horses with the little buggies he he used to race and he's now too old for that but he still has lots of horses and he has two little he has two houses one he lives in all the time then he has his little summer house where he keeps his horses and he goes and hangs out there and he's just a man who's lived he's got amazing stories he's still got a little sparkle in his eye like we went for lunch at this restaurant and there was i mean he's 70 and and the waitress must have been not 30 but he's just a terrible flirt but again, from a different era of, you know, I, I mean, he was, he was just, he, he was just, he was just a little character. Nothing, there was no wrongness to it, but it was just like, you are 70 and you still got that little, anyway, um, he's just a brilliant musician, made some amazing music over the years. 
um, and I did a project with him a few years ago where we, we kind of looked through his back catalogue of music and kind of represented that with sleeve notes and then I've just stayed in touch with him and yeah he's just got this um, lust for life I guess you'd call it uh, though he's 70 he's still yeah uh, he's, he's a bit old now so his fingers are all so he can't play so much but yeah, just a really interesting man and I had a lovely lunch with him. I went over for a week's hiking in Mallorca and then spent a day with a friend of mine who'd come from North Wales and we went to meet him at his little house, met his horses and then we went to this restaurant and we just hung out with him. And while we were there, he ran into an old friend he hadn't seen for probably 50 years who used to do all the Italian crooning around Palmer and stuff in all the bars and, and they were reminiscing and telling us of you know the music scene there and some of the artists that had come over and back in the day and... And I was just like, wow, you know, again, having these two people in front of a camera and just allowing them to talk would be a, would be a great podcast because it's, it's tales from people who are there about things that most people would have forgotten about, I guess. But yeah, it was really good. It was really good. So if you make this track, you know, land, I guess, early next year, what, what would you like to see happen with that? Can you imagine playing it Hostel Latore? Um, no, this has been discussed. It, again... I have no problem. I play for as I do Café Donar and all the other places. It, it shouldn't be tied to a venue. It needs to be... So there's talk of creating a video, um, and I know um, through speak, speaking to people like Pete Gooding and stuff like that, there are restaurants here that you can go and literally... Some of them shut at five o'clock, so they will rent you their rooftop space, and you've got the views and the sunset, so we can shoot a professional video and stuff. So the idea is we do a documentary, but also grab some content to make a couple of pieces of film you would watch to go with the, the pieces of music. Our long-term view is, I, I, firstly, just to connect these two cultures together and, and create some incredible music. We've, we've spoke with the Eisteddfod, which is the biggest cultural event in Wales. It happens every year, so they alternate between North and South Wales. And we've had the blessing of the Bard, who's like the main man because of the, the Coviar connection. And we've had an approach from somebody who is involved with, the, I think, the Welsh National Orchestra to orchestrate the whole piece. But these are all, you know, the way I look at it is let's put the, the basic steps in first. We'll get this record out, which will be part and parcel of hopefully the, the documentary that goes out um, but it gives me a calling card then when I when I then go to the Welsh Arts Council because at the moment we're, we're doing pretty much all of this out of our own pockets but the idea is that we can do this every one or two years and and then share that at the Eisteddfod and then look at any cultural events we can bring that to over here and just to say connect musicians and different bits of culture like the fact that this is a very famous Welsh poem and it's been put to some music that is very very spat or very very Balearic it kind of just kind of fits and works and I'm hoping it'll just spark some amazing partnerships between Mallorcan musicians Menorcan musicians Ibiza musicians poets um, yeah we'll just see where it goes from there really I wish you the very best of luck with that. I'm super excited. I mean, you've already sent me the poem. I've listened to it and watched the video. It was, yeah, amazing. And I can't wait to see what you do with that. Talk to us about, you know, you were saying about the old thinker that was amnesia, like back in the day. I'd love to hear a few more kind of old stories about Clubland on Ibiza before it became kind of what it is now. So from chatting with Joanne, um, he was telling me pre amnesia I mean most people I think will know that it was it was an old thinker 
and it was where all the hippies would hang out and but it was they say hippies there's lots of free free thinkers and from what i gather and i need to research this more joanne was telling me that the guy who owned that then became one of spain's premier free thinkers i guess whether he went to university and got degrees i don't know masters or whatever that is but this was a space for you know people who come to play music to hang out to talk and then obviously you know as djing because back then I'm, this is probably 60s and 70s i'm guessing it was it was all you know, live music but then with things like djing taking off and that's probably you know sound systems i guess somebody putting some big speakers and mixing decks and for you know alfredo's in there and then we have 88 in summer of love and, and we know all that but it's very interesting to kind of hear the story before the same again i think as i said earlier that what was happening in Dea, you know, these were all live musicians and i guess they were all just there must have been a few places in mallorca minorca and ibiza where they could all kind of come and meet and play so yeah, and that's again, I think as this project develops um, and I'm getting introduced because Joanne's going to introduce me to lots of other musicians. He said there's there's equally musicians here that I should be speaking to that, you know, were around in the 60s and 70s. And so that's kind of another part of this whole project really is to, to, to kind of discover that and try and evolve some of those people, but also bringing in new musicians because there's lots of great new musicians here. But because they're not in the electronic dance music scene, they just kind of get lifted and left. And there's an amazing festival um, which the, the Balearic government put on called Firabi in Mallorca. Happens every year. I got invited a few years ago to discuss this project. I'm doing the Welsh Balearic project, and it's just full of amazing jazz musicians. And they bring in invite people from all over the world. But the, the core of it is lots of you know groups from Mallorca, Minorca, and Ibiza. So I got to meet lots of interesting people there, which I've never been exposed to because I've been so caught up in the electronic dance music world. And actually, you know, that is just one part of it. There's, there's people who live here and work and that are not involved in any of that, but they are heavily involved in jazz or alternative music or folk music. Or So I really want to kind of develop, it, it, you know, this project into that and learn as much as I can and also document as much as I can, I think. Um, I've been working with Mark Rowlands, who used to write for The Guardian many years ago. He now lives in Croatia. I think he runs Time Out over there. And he does all my interviews with... He, I, when I worked with Raya Kawasaki, he did some interviews with Juan. Um, he's done sleeve notes for some other projects and things. And I'd like to get him involved. I, I want to try and get him and Juan together. Because Juan, you know, he, he's not getting any younger. And I think unless it's documented... And we didn't, we, we didn't do it with Raya, and I'm gutted because I think... Again, Ryo had some amazing stories, but I'd like to get as much as this document. And I think technology now allows for that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we can video and audio. I think our video stopped, but anyway. I'd like to speak to Joanne, actually. He, he sounds like a fascinating man, and um, I'd love to know more about that festival. I'd, I'd like to attend, actually, very um, very much. It sounds completely up my street. Yeah, Fira B. It's, um, so it's a music, so it's, it's a lot of music business type things. So there was guys from all the majors there, all the big festivals, lots of panels. But then they have a couple of theatre spaces and they have bands on. And yeah, it was good. I mean, it's all in Spanish. I think they have one or two panels in English. My panel was in English. Um, so it was kind of a bit of a struggle. But you can kind of get the gist of it. But the live gigs, obviously, you know, it doesn't matter. It's music. So yeah, I'm going to um, reach out because as this project now is getting to a point because I was supposed to put this 
Coffee or Welsh project out last year and we didn't do it. So with it happening next year, a lot of the people I met um, from the Spanish government, well, Ibiza government and Mallorcan kind of arts government, I'm going to reach out to them and say, look, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Wales, I want a hand with, mm. you know, the idea I said to you making some sort of documentary, whether it's privately funded or through funding from uh, art, the, the Balearic Arts Council. So what other festivals are you doing this year? DJ-wise, um, I'm off to Croatia to do Love International. Next month, yeah, can't wait. It's been a few years since I've been there. Um, it's an amazing festival, um, you know, very... The English festivals run by Dave Harvey, who is just he runs one of the big stages at Glastonbury. He lives in Bristol and his crew, and it's really good. Um, and I'm doing Bestival Camp Festival in Dorset, end of July. Again, first time I've played for them in a long, long time, so it'd be good to go and see Uncle Robbie, Rob the Bank. Um, What's the date of that? I think I'm doing Sunday, the 30th of July. Yeah, so I'm literally in. London for the I'm doing NTS radio and then with Maka who's a young Scouse guy who does like the amazing breakfast show there so he wants me in the studio and then I'm playing with him that night in London and I'm trained down to do the gig Sunday and then back to the island Monday so yeah one of those in and out jobs do you still camp at your age um I bloody hope not I've never camped I never camped at any festivals no 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 festival was my first ever festival um, and I, because I again, it, I didn't realise until after. But with the ADHD, when it's too much stimulus, it kind of drives me a bit mad. Um, so festivals were a no-no, and I, I've never been to Glasgow either because I just would have this. I want to see everything. I want to. I want to try everything and see everything, and it's just not possible in something like Glastonbury, right? So that's why I've avoided it. And but I did festival, and I really enjoyed it. But no, I've always stayed off site. I was very lucky that early. I think a couple of months before the first festival, I ran into, met two girls out here on holiday, and they were from the Isle of Wight, and um, just stayed friends and ended up staying at one of one of them's family house, and that they had this huge summer house with a jacuzzi at the back, and I would get the run of it. And the dad only had daughters, so he would be like, if the girls went in at a time, he'd be worrying. I'd rock up at eight in the morning with my pants ripped off not ripped off like but you know I'd been climbing over bushes and covered in mud and you know a bit spangled and he'd be like right breakfast on tell me all about it and then years later I found out he was actually involved in the first Isle of Wight festival he drove um what's his name the guitar player the American- Jimi Hendrix he drove Jimi Hendrix at that gig and I was just like wow I think it was we were at festival weekend we were watching a documentary the BBC were putting on and I think his van, oh, that's my van. And we're like, what, what's your van? Oh, that'll be the time I drove you. And then the door opened and Hendrix got out of his van. It was something bizarre like that. And we were just like, what? That was the year that there was so... So I went to the Isle of Wight Festival for about 10 years on the spin because I was working for Virgin Radio. And back in the day, it was in more of like a bowl kind of area. It wasn't in the place that they have it at now. And what happened was Hendrix basically kind of like... Um, 
laid down the gauntlet to people to come as many people as possible not even to buy a ticket and what happened was like a lot of people like gate crashed and there was way too many people there and it turned into absolute carnage but apparently it was one of the most legendary sets of all time yes it's true and from that Isle of Wight has become this incredible island where they 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 host feels facts the biggest scooter rally so they have thousands and thousands of scooterists every year they do the biggest garlic festival and they grow they grow this thing called elephant's foot it's like a bulb of garlic about this big all these facts I've learned over my years ago but they, the infrastructure's there now because they're because of the, the experience they had with that where it was like there was no infrastructure and they're like oh my god so we, we, we can see the positives of this because lots of money was made and I think there was even talk of people who went there for that festival and never left because there was places you could buy super cheap and it was and they're the people who've kind of helped develop stuff and yeah, I love the I love the Isle of Wight, and it is good. And I used to go down for the scooter festivals. I used to go for festival. Um, but yeah, and to get your big elephant foot of garlic. Garlic, yeah, roasted. Ooh. I love roasted garlic. So well, these, and then you just get a whole thing, just squeeze it on a big piece of bread. It's amazing. I hope you can't smell mine, but I did have some for breakfast. No, I can't smell it, but you can definitely smell it once you've had this elephant's foot stuff. <laughs> so yeah, so festival so I'm doing. Um, obviously, it's endorse it now, so I'm looking forward to that and just catching up with them. But no. Ca- Back to the camping question, no. This time, my friend Pete does all the production. He builds all like the amazing stuff for Robbie. And um, he has basically got, um, he has a couple of caravans and stuff. And I said, look, mate, I'm only in and out. I do not do want to sleep in a tent. Don't worry, he says, I've got a caravan for you. So that's, that'll do me. You've made me almost tempted to do a festival this summer. I haven't done one for... Since I was teaching yoga, you know, I, I did a lot uh, of the Isle of Wight ones. I did festival quite a few times. The last one I did was Latitude maybe three years ago, four years ago. And I vowed never again. It was the camping that did me over. And, you know, you vow that obviously because you're teaching yoga, you're not going to drink and you're not going to do this and you're not going to do that. And you, you end up doing all of it. And then you have to go and teach yoga and you just feel like this lo- lunatic, really, like for trying to make everyone all zen which they really need actually at a festival and it works beautifully and the transformation of people turning up hungover or worse you know and then when they get spat out the other side of an hour of yoga is is beautiful to watch but when you're also feeling kind of in similar shape i always found myself chuckling inwardly well i guess because you're on that same level it's not like you've turned up to a class where everybody is sober you know, and that would be wrong, wouldn't it? You imagine that yoga teacher on a Monday morning. Like that might have that might have happened a few times here. Yeah. But yes, you know, you're in a central London yoga hot yoga centre and just like breathing fumes out, and everybody's just like, "We're going to work," and you're just coming in from party. Um, I think that's part and parcel of the festival experience is being on that discombobulated state, and and then realising you arrive Friday and you haven't, and it's Monday and you haven't really slept. But I'm, no, I can't do that now because all my gigs are, are literally. You know, I mean, I do the gig, I'm out to do another gig or I'm coming back here to do more work. So I'm quite controlled, um, but only because of doing it the other way for so many years and feeling the pain on the other side. So I am looking forward to it um, and ca- mainly for catching up with friends and getting to see some live music and just being, you know, as much as we love the island, it is lovely to get off sometime because then when you fly back in, you just when you land in, you're like, oh, I'm home back so yeah I'm, I'm super excited and then to get to London as well and go to the Mangal you know it's my favourite Turkish place to go and have a pint of summer ale all those things that you can't do here necessarily well, you can but it's just with a different twist um, you just need to bring yourself a pint glass back from England next time yeah 
yeah and the thing is i don't really drink here but because i just find that hangovers there's just too much happening and there's too much other great stuff like i love being out hiking and stuff and if i'm sat in my room with the fear it just doesn't work but when i go to london for example i can go and have two or three pints comfortably fine you know but here i just i just don't really bother unless it's been a particularly heavy hike and i have nice cold shandy you cannot be a kenya at the end of a hike yeah agreed yeah really cold i mean i'm a shandy when it comes to that i love a shandy i think it's for that yeah but i do nice cold beer yeah for sure I actually got home after a three-hour hike last night. It wasn't supposed to be that long. We set off at seven. We got back at 10 o'clock at the night. I had no water with me on the hike, and I picked up the water, and then I saw this bottle of beer in the fridge, and I must admit, it was the most satisfying beer of my life. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, when you've earned it. Yeah, definitely it works. But, yeah, I don't know. I think, again, it's just come with age. It's I think, as I say to people, because I kicked the ball so hard for a long, long time, it doesn't bring me anything extra now. In fact, as we, I think as we get older, hangovers, most of my friends tell me it's a two or three day process now. I can't afford to take two or three days not focused, especially when you're living here and there's just so much happening. Uh, but yeah, when I go, as I say, go home uh, or go, when I go to London, I'll enjoy a few proper good ales. Yeah, warm, slightly tepid with bits of oats and that floating around in there. I'm going on Saturday and that's the first thing that you've inspired me. Listen, this is the end of the podcast. We've been talking for a whole hour. It's easy done with you, Joe. No, don't bloody stop, do you? (laughs) I don't think I've got a word in edgeways, my darling. (laughs) Well said. Touche. Thank you. No, thank you. It was lovely. Thanks for the coffee. It's the Reset Rebel. It's the Reset Rebel. Reset Rebel Coming to you every day